Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. This time, does serving your country make you a hero? And is that term helpful or harmful? Many veterans, including myself, feel being labelled as a hero is, is counterproductive. I think heroes fit very well in films and on books. I think it's much more helpful to think about heroic acts which occur occasionally. The story of China's giant balloon shot down by the US Air Force has captivated the world. But are these low-tech aircraft key to the high-tech military future? It is my intelligence assessment that data was uploaded during real time. The Chinese have already stolen what they wanted to steal. And as the UK promises it will train Ukrainian fighter pilots but still won't promise planes, Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark will assess whether that makes sense. Hi, Mike. Uh, so we've often talked about cutting-edge fighter jets, military hardware in space, but this week, a balloon. Yes, and of course we found out this week as well that this certainly wasn't the first time uh, the Pentagon itself said that there have been at least three occasions where Chinese balloons had invaded um, continental U.S. airspace, let alone in uh, Hawaii and Guam that we knew about during the Trump administration. And uh, yesterday they said actually there have been four occasions when it happened before. And, you know, if you look at balloons, they go back to the pre-Napoleonic period. And it's that, it's that old sort of idea that anything that works in the civilian world might have a military application. If the military can use something, they always will. So they've used balloons just as much as they've used the internal combustion engine, gunpowder, everything else. Well, Mike, we'll dig into that in a bit. But first, what's in a word? The term hero is often used to describe people who serve or have served in the armed forces. There are at least a dozen military charities in the UK with the word hero in their name. There's no doubting that many carry out heroic acts in service of their country, but a new study suggests applying the word hero to veterans is not always helpful. Psychologists in the US found the term may drive veterans towards more selfless, lower paid jobs. Dr. Matthew Stanley is lead author of the study. A lot of our work sort of started out trying to understand why it's the case that people have such favorable views of veterans. Uh, they're revered as a group of people, and yet they tend to experience uh, certain problems with underemployment and unemployment. Um, and so we were trying to make sense of that. So one sort of core component of what it means to be a hero, at least uh, sort of like in contemporary Western parlance, is that heroes are really, really selfless people. They sacrifice for others, they serve others. But what our research actually shows is that when you think about veterans as heroes, as really, really selfless people, you tend to sort of funnel them into certain jobs and careers and organizations that you, the public, associates with selflessness. The problem here is that, one, it limits veterans' agency, right? It sort of reduces the possible set of options that they might have. Um, and it's also the case that jobs and careers and organizations that we associate with selflessness, uh, they tend to be much lower paying. Um, so it could be harming veterans' financial futures and, and financial security and stability. And can you be sure that the word hero is responsible for veterans heading towards more selfless jobs? Military service is arguably one of the most selfless jobs going. So maybe that's the kind of people veterans are. 
Yeah. So you could imagine that there's some sort of self-selection going here, right? So that the people who end up going into the military are more selfless to start. But I would argue that there are lots of people like that, right? But there are people who go to the military for lots of different reasons. So maybe you go to further your education, right? Support your family, to learn certain skills, certain trades. Um, there's a lot of evidence suggesting that uh, the reasons are pretty multifaceted. And so we shouldn't necessarily just assume that veterans want to go on sort of selflessly sacrificing for others once they return to civilian life, right? So do you think we should stop calling veterans heroes? I wouldn't say that we should necessarily just get rid of the term altogether. Uh, many veterans have acted in, in very heroic ways, right? But at the same time, maybe we can we can adjust our hiring processes to help veterans. The words that we use to describe groups, um, although we might think of them as, as sort of like positive and harmless, uh, they can sort of have very surprising and insidious and ironic implications. Dr. Matthew Stanley, well, it's not the first time the use of the word hero has been questioned. Does it place a burden on someone to live up to that label or perhaps even stigmatise veterans as damaged? We'll hear from the charity Help for Heroes in a moment, but I just want to bring in Neil Greenberg, Professor of Defence Mental Health at King's College London. Uh, Neil, you're a veteran of the Royal Navy. How do you feel about being called a hero for that? I certainly don't consider myself to be a hero. I think that uh, some of the things that service personnel, including myself, have done uh, whilst um, deployed, you know, might in some cases be heroic. I'm not sure that I necessarily meet those criteria, but I think it's not helpful to, to label either myself or other veterans as being a hero all the time. I think it's better to think about uh, people doing heroic acts, which occur obviously occasionally. So you think it's not helpful to call people heroes. Why do you think that? Well, from a personal and also from a psychological point of view, I'm, I'm a psychiatrist by, by trade. When you say to someone that they're a hero, it gives them an idea that somehow they should be acting in the role of a hero all the time. We don't really perhaps know what heroes do most of the time. We only see or read or hear about what happens in books and films and occasionally in reality. And that portrayal of a hero is of someone who is always saving others, who is taking huge risks, who overcomes adversity and who um, is successful despite the odds being against them. And in reality, if you took that approach uh, to most of your life, you would end up doing very risky things, no doubt getting hurt or injured psychologically or physically. And I just don't think it, it's helpful at all. One of the other difficulties about being called a hero is you, you're kind of at the top of your game. The only place you can go is downwards. And many veterans, including myself, feel that actually being labelled as a hero is, is counterproductive. It, it tries to uh, make us into things that we're not. And uh, I don't think it's good for, for people's psychological health to be labelled as a hero. Professor Greenberg, stay with us because one of the most well-known military charities is Help for Heroes, created in 2007 to help the hundreds of British troops who were being injured each year in Iraq and Afghanistan. Mark Elliott is one of the founders. We, uh, when we started the charity, believe that those people who join uh, our armed services, by the very fact of joining them, makes them a hero, knowing that they may well have to give the ultimate sacrifice, and that makes them a hero. I've certainly never met a, a service man or woman uh, ever describe themselves as a hero. What do you make of this US study that finds the term hero may drive veterans towards lower paid, selfless jobs? 
But I think what it, it says is that servicemen and women, when they leave the armed forces, need help and understanding. We need to educate the civilian world of just how skilled these people are and have been because of their military service. And there are also concerns um, that it could create unreasonable expectations of a person to be almost superhuman. Do you buy that? No, not at all. I I really don't. I think this is a matter of of education. Um, There is no doubt that what uh, our service men and women do to many may seem superhuman, but actually it's a result of commitment and frankly, remarkable training. Yeah, I just wanted to read to you, Mark, um, some comments about the story that have been put on our social media. Uh, They go like this. uh, The heroes are the ones we leave behind, but I despise the way the word is bandied about in society. Even heard it once to describe someone sitting in a bath of beans for charity. Another said, I have always found that description embarrassing and it diminishes the word. And then lastly, there's a comment saying, serving your country is something to be proud of, but it doesn't automatically make you a hero. What do you think of those kinds of views? Well, I think everybody's got an opinion, don't they? I do believe that the great British public should recognise that service. I certainly don't believe any service man or woman believes that they are. Uh, And indeed, having spent a lot of time, many, many years serving in the infantry, I include myself in that. When you named the charity Help for Heroes, clearly the idea was to say something very positive about the people you support. Do they ever say anything to you about the name? I suppose, you know, inverted commas, embarrassed when people go, you're heroes and whatever, and servicemen and women are selfless. So it was very much aimed at the British public. I remember going across to America with a group of of wounded guys and girls Uh, for a race across America. And it's very strange over there when they saw us, um, people were coming up and saying, thank you for your service. And, you know, the first few days, it was very strange. And we were very sort of, I guess, embarrassed, humbled, not sure what to do. Mm. But actually, by the end of the trip, it was really quite pleasant. Does that mean you would never consider changing the name of Help for Heroes? No, it absolutely does what it says on the can. It helps heroes. Mark Elliott of Help for Heroes. Uh, Professor Neil Greenberg, Mark Elliott's point is they use the word hero to drive public recognition of the work and the sacrifices of servicemen and women. And actually embracing that can be really positive, as he found in the US. Um, I know Mark, and, and he's a great chap, and I completely support the wonderful work that Help for Heroes do. And I've also been to the US myself uh, many times as a veteran and also while I was still serving and had that same experience of people saying thank you for your service. Um, and it is humbling and, and perhaps slightly embarrassing at first. But I don't see any particular problem in a, in a charity calling themselves Help for Heroes. They, they do a great job. I think when it comes down to the individual, to labelling Neil or Sandra or Peter as a hero because of their service in the military, I, I don't think that bit's helpful. And I think also in terms of society, there are many people out there who do heroic acts. You know, child social workers who deal with difficult cases every day, the NHS over uh, the last three years, but, but really forever, you know, our emergency services. You know, our teachers who work in you know really challenging schools where, where do where do where does it all stop you know how do we if everyone's a hero then what does the word hero really mean 
So I think that from an individual point of view, we should be very cautious about labelling a specific person as a hero. So the big question is, what, what do you think we should do with the word hero? I think we should um, use it in the way that it's meant to be used, that there are individuals who at time uh, carry out heroic acts and, and people win medals for this, which, which is absolutely uh, right. Uh, but I don't think that what we should do is to label everybody automatically a hero just because you happen to have joined the armed forces or served or even been deployed. Um, and I also don't think that once someone has done their act of heroism, that we should label them as a hero for the rest of their life and make them believe that the whole of their existence revolves around that act that they did. So I think we should carry on using the term. It's perfectly good. There's nothing wrong with it. But we should use it very carefully. Professor Neil Greenberg from King's College London, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much indeed. Michael Clark, you spent a lot of time with very senior members of the armed forces. Have you ever picked up any sense of how they feel about that label, hero? Mm, yes, uh, quite a lot, actually. The, the, I think the, the, the troops, they, they love being part of a unit that is regarded as acting heroically. So they mm. love that. Of course they do. So, you know, to be a member of the, sort of the guards at Dunkirk or the glorious Gloucesters in, the, say, in the Korean War or Bomber Command or one of the few, the Battle of Britain pilots, those units behaved heroically and they, and they like that. Of course they do. But they don't want to be labelled individually as a hero. You know, Max Hastings produced a very interesting book a little while ago called Heroes, I think it was. And he looked at individual cases. He looked at people like, uh, you know, Douglas Bader, the Battle of Britain pilot, and um, Guy Gibson, who led the dams raid in the dam bust, Audie Murphy, uh, the most decorated American soldier. And I mean, all of these people were, were either difficult characters or they were loners. They tended to get people around mm. them killed. They weren't all that popular because they attracted fire. They did things that other people didn't really want to do. Uh, very interesting. Individual heroes, individual heroism. Sometimes it's a single act which they can't live up to. And you know the famous case of the Battle of Rourke's Drift in uh, 1879. You know, Zulu, the film Zulu, everybody knows that. Yep. And the Battle of Rourke's Drift. Eleven VCs were won that day at Rourke's Drift. And the two officers, uh, Chard and Bromhead, um, both won VCs, and of course the press came rushing out to Rook's Rift after the action to interview them, make them into big figures, and they weren't. They were very mm. morose, very um, very quiet afterwards. It was kind of post-battle stress, and neither of them were particularly distinguished officers, but they'd done something there, and the public insisted on making them into heroes, and they really, they find it difficult to handle. And you know, the yeah. other person that day was Colour Sergeant Bourne. Colour Sergeant Bourne, I love that character. He, he was played <laughs> in the film by uh, Nigel Green, wonderful portrayal. And Colour Sergeant Bourne, he won the VC, and he went on to serve in the Boer War and then the First World War, and he outlived Hitler by about a week. Wonderful, <laughs> wonderful character. And, he, and he, he gave his story once. He was interviewed by the BBC and he told his whole story to the BBC. And uh, before the film Zulu ever appeared, somebody wiped it in the archives as being of no particular historical interest. So <sighs> we could have had his we could have had his own words, his own life story. And mm. some idiot went and wiped the record on which it was to s create space in the archives. Yeah. Colour Sergeant Paul. Yeah, it's really fascinating stuff. And whatever you think of the word, there was a hero's welcome for Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky when he arrived in the UK. He met the Prime Minister, Chiefs of Defence and Air Staff and Ukrainian troops being trained by British forces. President Zelensky also addressed Parliament. I appeal to you and the world with simple and yet most important words. Combat aircrafts for Ukraine.
wings for freedom. What he got from Rishi Sunak were promises of more training for Ukrainian soldiers, new training for Ukrainian Marines and training for Ukrainian pilots to fly sophisticated NATO standard fighter jets in the future. But President Zelensky wants those planes now. Michael Clark, does this make any sense to train Ukrainian pilots if we're not sending them the planes at the moment? Well, it makes sense to invest for the future because they certainly will need more pilots. And Britain does have something to offer here um, in the sense that we're good at simulated training and we use a lot of simulation in our own training. I have to say our own training pipeline is a complete mess. It's, yeah. it's almost completely broken. It takes five years to train an RAF pilot and it should take two uh, it's it's a, it's a public scandal. However, that's not relevant to this. We have the facilities to train and um, an existing combat pilot could be trained in the UK on simulators in, in a matter of weeks, four or five weeks, if they're already so flying MiG-29, say, in combat. That's a, just a conversion course. So, we, were, so we do have the capacity, do we, Mike, then, we even do. if there is yeah. a backlog yeah, in, we do. in the UK? Yeah, simulated okay. training and some time in the air, because that really is only, only a conversion from, say, MiG-29s to uh, a, 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 one of the NATO fighters. And we can set it up. We can set up the simulation to uh, mirror, say, a Gripen or an F-16 or a Mirage, which are the realistic fighters. But the idea of Britain providing anything more than training in the air field is, um, is a complete fantasy because we've got nothing to offer. And Mike, we've been talking for a few weeks now about the possibility of a new Russian offensive in Ukraine. Is it imminent, do you think? I'm not sure. Everyone's talking about it being, uh, you know, something that the Russians would do on the anniversary, on the 24th of February. I think if they do that, they'll go early and they might do something on the 24th of February because they do like their anniversaries. But if I was a Russian planner and a general, I would be saying to look, Mr. President, um, we can't get this wrong a second time. We better hold back until we're completely sure. And I'm not sure that they are ready. They're certainly bringing troops into the theatre and some equipment. But I don't think they'll be ready for a major offensive by the end of this month. And I suspect that they'll try some distraction operations. But we'll see the, the metal of this Russian spring offensive, I think, a little bit later. And when we see it, I think it will look like a multi-pronged attack because they'll try to stretch the Ukrainians in several different places, but it will really be concentrated. It would only make sense to concentrate it in the Donbass to seize the rest of the Donbass and consolidate the land bridge to Crimea. So that's the, going to be the essence of it as and when it begins. And there's a lot of focus at the moment in Western reporting, at least, is on Bakhmut. Russian forces seem to be closing in. How significant is this particular battle? Well, I think it's it's significant in the sense that the Ukrainians are probably going to have to lose it. Uh, the Russians will win or the Wagner group who have been fighting in Bankmut will declare it as a victory. And this is something they probably want to get done by the 24th of February. And it looks as if they may they may do that. They won't, I think, be able to take the whole city, you know, street by street. They're already fighting in the eastern suburbs. But what the the back, what the, um, the Russian forces can do, the Wagner forces, is they can surround it. They've got two out of three roads now under their control. There's only one quite not very good road to the southwest now open. At some point, as happened in Lishyshansk, the uh, Ukrainians will have to say, OK, boys and girls, you know, get out. Um, we can't let ourselves be surrounded. You've got to live to fight another day. And there'll come a point, I think quite soon, where if they can't stop this ring closing behind them, they'll have to withdraw it. News, discussions and analysis. This is Sitrep.
It must have felt like something from a film when people living in South Carolina watched a giant Chinese balloon more than 10 miles up in the sky being shot down with a missile from an F-22 fighter jet. Kaz, come here. They're shooting at it. Here we go. Boom! When I say giant, I really mean it. The balloon itself was the size of a 20-storey building, according to the US military, and carried equipment the size equivalent to three double-decker buses. And while the idea of a spy balloon might sound quaint in the era of surveillance satellites and drones, former US Defense Intelligence Officer Rebecca Koffler believes it's probably raided a lot of American secrets. My intelligence assessment is that it was a multi-sensor payload. Clearly, it went over very specific uh, strategic targets, such as Air Force bases. At one of these bases, we conduct highly sensitive, top-secret war games. But more importantly, nuclear intelligence, right? The communication between these various bases and assets, SIGINT type of collection. It is my intelligence assessment that uh, that data was uploaded during uh, real time. The Chinese have already stolen what they wanted to steal. And the U.S. now says this was at least the fourth Chinese balloon to enter its airspace. So are balloons or airships actually military tools of the future? Well, China insists this was just a weather balloon gone off course. Publicly available documents show Beijing's growing interest in military use of high-altitude inflatables. A paper last year talked about using them to test enemy air defences and create interference. China believes Israel and the US are also working on high-tech spy balloons. And the director of the UK's Development Concepts and Doctrine Centre tweeted this week, What role do we think balloons and airships will play in the future? We're looking at this at DCDC. ISR, that's Intelligence, Surveillance and Reconnaissance, logs, net zero targets spring to mind. Well, John Blacksland is Professor of International Security and Intelligence Studies at the Australian National University. After Francis Gary Powers was shot down in his U-2 spy plane over the Soviet Union in the early 1960s, international powers moved away from surveillance and ISR, Intelligence, Surveillance and Reconnaissance by planes particularly over sensitive sites, and they tended to gravitate towards satellite. They've been derogue for the last half century. But we now face the situation where the low Earth orbit space where much of the satellite uh, activity takes place is getting really crowded and full of junk, you know, speeding around faster than a speeding bullet. In addition, there's now a range of methods by which you can incapacitate a satellite. A kinetic strike, laser, a balloon operates in a domain that has been largely vacated. A balloon can loiter, uh, which gives you an ability to monitor radio frequency traffic, take a serious succession of photos uh, with more of a time lag to get you a sense of patterns of behaviour, patterns of life that are exploitable what about the quality of the surveillance for a balloon? Can that be better? So definitely the surveillance can be better because you're closer to the target. You're not in low Earth orbit, which is actually in outer space. It's in inner space. It's, it, it, the distance is considerably greater and the loiter time is less. So you can get far greater fidelity uh, over the target. 
so that's a particularly significant advantage. Let's not forget, you can put on a balloon the kind of CubeSat technology that you would put into low Earth orbit, uh, but you're just doing it closer to the ground and loitering for longer. So that there's significant inherent advantages to that. And, of course, it's a lot cheaper. Uh, you don't have to fire it up in a, with a rocket. You can just put some helium in the balloon and, you know. And why would you choose a balloon over a drone? Uh, so drones don't fly nearly as high as, bal- as balloons do, by and large. Um, and uh, drones are more readily detectable, especially the big ones, and they're more durable. But, I mean, they're, they're, each of them has trade-offs. Each, the adva- there are significant advantages to drones. Uh, they're more readily recoverable. But a drone doesn't do what a, a balloon can do. It doesn't loiter at the stratosphere in, in a very difficult space to, to actually, uh, except for with the Mark 1 eyeball, it's actually hard to spot. It's not easy mm. to detect. When you were talking earlier about the comparison between balloons and satellites, you mentioned how uh, balloons are much cheaper, um, but they mm. are vulnerable, aren't they? What's happened in the US has demonstrated that. Yeah, well, that's right. I think everybody's going to go back to the drawing board now uh, because we've seen so, uh, we've seen balloons used. You know, uh, coalition forces in Afghanistan use balloons, on tethered balloons for surveillance purposes, uh, but the super the stratospheric ones not so not so frequent. So that kind of behaviour. China appears to have been tempting, you know, tempting fate a little bit, testing to see, testing the waters. And to be honest, part of the deal was probably to see what kind of reaction it would get. So what part of the frequency spectrum would light up, if you like, when they transited through. And how do you see the, the future of balloons? Are they the airships of the future? So it doesn't do everything. It's got limited utility for specific mission types because of the way it, it, it's not controllable in the way a drone is or a uh, a satellite which can, you know, follow a set, a set pattern. You you are going to be affected by the winds. But let's think about the purposes, one of which is, you know, the Japanese used them to drop uh, incendiary bombs over the west coast of the US and Canada in the Second World War. You can use them for surveillance. You can use them to test the reaction to emanate signals, if you like. People talk about possibly using for a, some kind of electromagnetic pulse detonation to as a precursor perhaps to another follow-on strike or some kind of attempt to deflect, to, to blind, to distract. There's a variety of purposes that are conceivable for which balloons could be used. Professor John Blackson from the Australian National University. Mike, um, balloons have a long military history, as you mentioned earlier on. Uh, are they making a comeback or did they never go away? Well, uh, it's always the case, as we say, that, that anything that works in the civilian field may have a military utility and that's what's happened to balloons so the balloons seem to be uh, a thing of the future when we talk about zeppelins in the first world war but the thing that killed airships off were the two great disasters the the r101 disaster the british uh, airship and the hindenburg famously in america where they were just too combustible too dangerous so there wasn't much thinking about balloons except for peripheral roles uh, where you didn't have people on board for many, many years. But uh, in the last 20 years, balloons have become very safe. They're, they're not combustible now. You can, as we know, you can fire bullets through them and they won't blow up. You can fire a missile through them and so on. They're very safe units, bags as it were. So they become useful again in certain sorts of ways as we were just discussing. I mean, there's, you know, there's pros and cons of balloons as opposed to aircraft, as opposed to drones. But like everything else, if there are things you can do with a civilian balloon, the military get interested. 
And Mike, just before we go, uh, can we talk about the work to update the UK's defence master plan, the refresh of the integrated review? The Chancellor asked for it to be ready before the budget. Now we're hearing it might be delayed till after. What's going on and how much does all of this matter? Yes, it looks like quite a row going on in Whitehall. The, the budget is due for the 15th of March, and originally the integrated review was going to come out the week before, as we thought in the last uh, last time we talked about it on the programme. Uh, so the 7th of March uh, was the likely date. That's now we know has been pushed back. So maybe it'll be pushed back for a couple of weeks, perhaps to the 21st, 22nd of March. But I'm also hearing that maybe it'll be pushed back even further than that, because there is now such... Um, pressure on the government, not just from the military establishment making statements and articles appearing in the press and Americans making statements, mm. but also um, the backbenches of the Conservative Party. Downing Street's in a pretty weak position on this because Britain's the only country that hasn't increased defence expenditure since the Ukrainian invasion. And it may be that Downing Street are pushing the whole thing back for a, for a rewrite, not just a relaunch. So we're waiting to hear. The one thing we're sure of is that there's some pretty intense discussion going on, if not an outright row, behind mm. closed doors in Whitehall. Whatever the reason, is the delay good or bad? It, it might be good in the, from a defence point of view because the, uh, the word on the integrated review was that it wasn't very, the, the refresh wasn't very refreshing. Uh, <laughs> some said it's just a retread, not a refresh, whatever that may mean. Mm. Um, if it goes back into the works, then it suggests that something a bit more radical might be coming out uh, as a result. But ultimately, the question is, Ukraine, the Ukraine war has fundamentally altered European security. So whatever we were thinking before is probably in need of some more radical rethinking afterwards. And I'm not sure that message has got through to Downing Street, but it certainly got through to the Ministry of Defence. Professor Michael Clark, good to have your insight. Thanks very much. And thanks to all of our guests. That's all for now. We'll be back with another SITREP next Thursday. And if you want to listen online, you can now find us on the Forces News YouTube channel, as well as our home at bfps.com slash SITREP or wherever you download your podcasts. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye bye.